Coming up on Stew Does America, President Trump had a hunch about the coronavirus and the media swarmed like a piranha on a one-legged baby duckling. Mm. Daily Wire's Matt Walsh is here to talk about complacency of faith in the modern Christian world. And Jason Buttrell breaks down the peace negotiations between the U.S. government and the Taliban because for some reason there are peace negotiations between the U.S. government and the Taliban. Make sure to click subscribe, rate, and review, and click that uh, bell for notifications on YouTube. That's important. And for the wealthiest 1% of the 1%, the millionaires and the billionaires, subscribe to blazetv.com slash stew. Make sure to use the code that uh, stew because that's how they know that you like this stupid show and people need to know. And you'll also save 10 bucks or whatever, but you don't need it because you're way, way, way too rich. Stew does America. Ah, yes, the coronavirus is coming for you. In fact, it's already here. Oh, my gosh. It's coming. It's coming. It's calling from inside the house. What are you going to do? Run. I guess that's all you can do. There's no doubt the coronavirus is legitimately serious, and there is real reason to be freaked out about it. Besides the health risks, which are significant, you have the effects to the economy and the possibility of massive travel disruption. Uh, if you're on vacation at Disneyland and you get quarantined inside It's a Small World, you're going to go insane and there's nothing you can do about it. I'm sorry. So let's try to break this down in a calm and sober way. Are you going to get the coronavirus? Yes, of course you are. You probably already have. Coronaviruses are a common cause of mild to moderate upper respiratory illness in humans. That's according to the CDC. What we're talking about today is a previously unknown strain of coronavirus with a super catchy name of COVID-19, which is much better than COVID-18. Let's be honest about it. That's the one you're seeing everyone freak out about in the media. Donald Trump, who is, I don't know if you notice this, occasionally criticized by members of the media. It's true. Is getting headlines like this. Trump has a hunch. <laughs> a hunch. WHO report of 3.4% coronavirus death rate is false. A hunch? Oh, geez. Another Trump conspiracy theory? What is he talking about? Here's the context. Well, I think the 3.4% is really a false number. Now, this is just my hunch. And uh, But based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this, because a lot of people will have this, and it's very mild. Uh, they'll get better very rapidly. They don't even see a doctor. They don't even call a doctor. You never hear about those people. You never do. This clip has driven the media absolutely insane. Here's how it's been translated. Aaron Rupar from Vox, excuse me, called it astoundingly irresponsible. Brian Stelter of CNN wrote, I hesitate to even print the United States president's words here because they're so at odds with what health experts are saying. MSNBC was telling its viewer, singular, the sitting president of the United States told a national television audience not to believe the research from the World Health Organization's experts. Philip Bump of The Washington Post wrote that Trump's twice, Trump twice admits that he's simply making up the percentage he's talking about, calling it a hunch and saying that it is his personal assessment. Did he? Did he, Philip? I mean, really? Did he, is that what he just said? Was he making it up? Did he say it was just his personal assessment? Or did he say that his opinion was, quote, based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this? Regardless of whether he was summarizing conversations with the experts around him or if he magically conjured the mortality rate from his Oval Office Ouija board, what Trump's talking about here is absolutely true. No matter what efforts the media partakes in to attempt to make him look insane. 
The reason this is such a fertile ground to attack the president is, you know, because there's a lot we don't know. Without certainty comes panic. But all of the evidence points to the fact that the mortality rate of COVID-19 is way, way less than 3.4%. In Washington state, it is now believed that COVID-19 was being spread for weeks and weeks with potentially thousands of people carrying the virus without knowing it. This is, of course, happening all over the world. Do you think Iran is giving us the real numbers? Part of the issue here is that it's super easy to locate the infected people who are dying. You find them first, you know, that's kind of the way it works. When grandpa winds up in a hospital bed, it's hard to avoid noticing their death. It's weird like that. But when a relatively healthy but lovingly overweight 44-year-old has a bit of a cough, is that noticeable? Especially when they have allergies that cause those same symptoms every year right around this time? I mean, is that bad? I mean, I'm asking you seriously because that's me. Am I about to die? Well, yes, but that's more related to the announcement of Wendy's serving breakfast than a coronavirus. Do I have COVID-19? I, I mean, it's possible. Would I be surprised or freaked out if I found out that I did? Probably not, although that would mean a lot more time at home watching Police Academy movies on Netflix. Normally, when you feel a little bit sick, you go to the doctors and they probably test you for the flu, right? Or strep throat. Even when you don't have the exact symptoms, they give you the test anyway, because as they always say, we just want to rule it out. That's because those tests are very available. They overtest. They catch every instance of the flu that walks in the door and they have a great handle on the total amount of people affected. COVID-19 is way too new for that. We don't have anywhere close to enough tests, even for the people we think are infected. We're supposed to have another million tests by next week. And then what you will see, and mark my words, are exploding numbers of people infected in the United States. It will seem really scary, but it will actually be a good thing. Most of these people already have coronavirus now and just don't know it. We need to understand how this thing is spreading and where it is going. One of the weird reasons this thing is such a big deal is because its symptoms are often so mild. Let me give you an example. If you have a thousand cases uh, that you've discovered and 34 people die, you get that much talked about 3.4% mortality rate. But the only reason you've caught those thousand cases is because those cases were the ones with severe symptoms. There might be another thousand or 10,000 cases you're missing because the tests aren't common or that people don't even know they have it because they aren't noticing anything out of the ordinary. No symptoms, no worry. Perhaps the uh, best the best evidence, and this has been one they've been studying quite a bit, comes from the uh, fancy Diamond Princess cruise ship, a.k.a. the floating Petri dish of the sea. Because it was isolated away from the rest of the population, it gives the most pure view of what a real mortality rate might be. On that cruise, 707 people caught COVID-19 and six died. Instead of a 3.4% mortality rate, that gives you about a 0.8% mortality rate, less than a quarter of the reported rate, but still considerably worse than the average flu. But there are plenty of reasons to believe that the 0.8% rate is way too high as well. If you've ever been on a cruise, you might notice that they tend to cater to an older crowd with an abnormal expertise in the sport of shuffleboard. We know, like the flu, older people and those with existing ailments are largely the people falling victim to this sort of thing. And there is a clear correlation between the quality of your shuffleboard skills and catching coronavirus. That's not true, but it feels true. 
The other thing is, you know, that's likely inflating this mortality rate is the fact that we currently have no treatments at all. The flu mortality rate is 0.1% has been widely reported, but that's in an environment where half the population gets vaccinated and there are four approved medications for the flu that help people recover. This doesn't help us with COVID-19 in the immediate term, but within a year or two, the vaccine will almost definitely be available. And before that, we will find treatments that will help lower that rate too. Trump went on in his interview to say this. You know, all of a sudden it seems like uh, three or four percent, which is a very high number, as opposed to as opposed to a fraction of one percent. But again, they don't they don't know about the easy cases because the easy cases don't go to the hospital. They don't report to doctors or the hospital in many cases. So I think that that number is very high. I think the number personally, I would say the number is way under one percent. Mm. As Vice so helpfully pointed out, Trump said the real number was a fraction of 1% without providing any evidence beyond conversations with a lot of people who do this. What other evidence would you like him to provide other than the opinion of the experts that do this? Do you want him performing the scientific research himself? Maybe if instead of saying, I would say the number is way under 1%, he made it sound a little bit more like doctor speak. Maybe that would help. Let me attempt a translation for you. If one assumes that the number of asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic cases is several times as high as the number of reported cases, the case fatality rate may be considerably less than 1%. If he said it that way, would it be okay? By the way, that's not actually my translation of Trump's words, although it would work perfectly that way. It was a quote from the New England Journal of Medicine. You would think that all these journalists that are mocking and bashing Trump would know this information. You'd think that if they were going to say it was so irresponsible, they were almost afraid to type it, that they would, I don't know, maybe have checked to make sure that the medical experts didn't publicly agree. You might even think that if they did have this information and they had it maybe the whole time, and maybe they chose not to include it because they knew their audience would just read the Trump bashing headline and never check their work. While all of those are incredibly plausible options, they're not true. You see, I actually found all this information in my uh, super uh, special confidential hush hush for my eyes only magical top secret information box. Mm -hmm. It's right here. Sometimes I open this box and I find important information that is available only to me. And that's why pundits and journalists and politicians say such uninformed crap all the time. They don't have access to the information that proves them wrong because I only keep it in this box and only I can open it. Let's try peeking inside together. Mm -hmm. Oh, here it is. Now, it's a paper right here. Very bright light in the, in the box. It's a paper from the MRC Center for Global Infectious Disease Analysis at Imperial College London. And it says they obtained, quote, estimates of the overall case fatality ratio in all infections, asymptomatic or symptomatic, of approximately 1%. Huh, that is so weird, isn't it? I'm glad I have access to this magical information so I don't make myself look like an idiot, though I often do anyway. Or how about this? Fatality ratios fluctuate based on the uh, response and quality of the healthcare system. Hmm, that's interesting. That might be why South Korea is reporting a fatality rate of 0.57%, or as the president might say, way under 1% bigly. I'm so glad I have this super secret box because maybe the media can get one sometime too so they can have this information. The coronavirus thing is scary to people because it deals in the unknown. We don't entirely know what is going to happen. 
It could be that this thing kills 200 times more people than it has already. And it might do that every single year. Who knows? And if it does, it would equal the regular good old flu. That's not an argument to stop worrying about the coronavirus. That's an argument to start worrying a hell of a lot more about the flu. Infectious disease and virus. I mean, it's one of the only things out there that wipes more people off the planet than communism. So, yes, we should be very worried about it. Yes, we can wash our hands. We can try not to lick our fingers and then touch food again like Michael Bloomberg was doing. But at some level, all of this is going to be in God's hands. What we should be able to control is the anti-Trump bloodlust of supposedly impartial journalists scaring the hell out of people just to get rage clicks. They all knew what Trump was saying. They all knew what the scientific basis was, and they all acted as if they didn't. They wanted to call him an idiot so badly, they made idiots of themselves. At least there's hope for a vaccine that will stop COVID-19 someday. When it comes to crappy journalism, there seems to be no cure. You know, I'm looking inside my super secret box right here. And inside has a lot of information about home title fraud. That's true. You know, it's one of the fastest growing crimes in America. Did you know that? It's true. When you have a home, you want to protect the equity that is in that home. This is a basic thing. It's one of the, the, the things you have to do as a homeowner. Uh, you got to lock the door. You have to maybe put an alarm on your home. You have to make sure that the money you're putting into that mortgage payment every month that's paying down that principal, that is your money, your savings, your retirement, it has to be protected. And home title fraud is one of the things that can rip that right out, right out from under you. That's why home title lock exists. The FBI calls home title fraud one of the fastest growing crimes in America. And you need to pre- protect your online title because thieves will go after it. And if they get it, they can forge it and then they can borrow money against your equity. Guess who gets stuck with the payments? Not the thief. It's you. No insurance or bank protects you from this, but Home Title Lock does. You could already be a victim of title fraud and not even know it. Find out now. Register your home at HomeTitleLock.com and enter STU for one month of free protection. Again, enter STU for one month free protection at HomeTitleLock.com. Go there today and make sure you use the code STU because that's how they know you like this stupid show. HomeTitleLock.com. It's HomeTitleLock.com. Matt Walsh is a podcast host, Daily Wire contributor, and author whose new book is called Church of Cowards, A Wake-Up Call to Complacent Christians. Matt, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on, Stu. Appreciate it. It's, it's, a, it's a really intriguing uh, topic because I think a lot of times um, we think, you know, showing up on Sunday is probably enough. It's, you know, we've done our work. We, we go out to the parking lot. We go to a couple of picnics, and that's kind of all we need to do here. Uh, why do you think now is the time for, for this message? Well, I think most uh, most Christians that you talk to, at least most you know faithful Christians who care about their faith, you talk to them, and, and everyone seems to agree that there's a serious problem in this country, in the West, generally, uh, in the church. If you look at the statistics, they'll show you that they tell us that you know the, the number of Christians is going down precipitously, while the number of atheists is going up. But I think we all know that the whatever it says, 80% of America's Christians down from 85 and 90. Before, but uh, the, it's it's worse than that. I think we all know because if you would actually talk to those eighty percent, we find that a shockingly small percentage of them actually affirm all the various doctrines of the faith that used to be we used to consider essential to the faith and still are. Um, and so the question is, why is that? Why is it happening? And that's what I'm trying to get into in the book. And I think that a big part of the reason is that we're so 
complacent and comfortable in this culture and we've we've we just sort of go along with the tide of the culture addressing it up in words like tolerance and acceptance and as if these things are virtues um and we've lost that uh, spirit of, of of resisting and standing up and, and fighting back against uh, the tide of culture. I wonder. I wonder if it's the same thing, um, something similar to this that I've been feeling, which is almost that the church, uh, in, in many ways, has become almost too pragmatic. Like in a way, what I want out of church is to keep me to uh, help me keep to you know foundational principles, even when it's really difficult outside of those walls. And a lot of times, it feels like uh, at least in a public-facing way, church is bending to those sort of pragmatic needs of the everyday person to fit into culture and everything else. Do you, is that kind of what you're trying to hit on here? Yeah, I, I think I absolutely agree. I think that's exactly that's exactly the problem. Uh, what, what's happened in so many churches that you go you go in and they're they're trying to help you um, in your your life in this which 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 is okay should should be okay to to help you with you know how to live a, a life, sure. but but the focus should be on how to live a good and, and holy life. Instead, the focus is how to how to make my life more comfortable. And we know that there are very odious versions of this, like the prosperity gospel, where it's really direct, and they tell you if you pray the right way, then you'll be rewarded with riches by God. Uh, but but oftentimes you don't encounter it as explicitly at that as that. But still, the focus is is so often on the here and now, on on this life here. We've lost that focus on the eternal truths. Um, and so out the window goes things like sacrifice, uh, obedience. These have become dirty words, but you, that's that's what the Christian faith is about. And that's actually, I think, even if people don't know it, that's what they actually are hungering for and what they want. They want that kind of message of sacrifice because they know that in there is meaning. And that at the end of the day is, I think, what everyone is looking for in this culture is meaning in their life. And, and so many of us aren't, aren't finding it. There is that level There's of, that level. I, I think, a, just a human being. You want to be comfortable. You want people to like you. You want to get along with people. And you get into sort of these divisive cultural issues. I know we kind of talk about them all the time as sort of part of our job. But for the average person, you know, they, they don't want to ruffle the feathers of the people around them. How does, how does like the average person go through these things when you're talking about difficult topics that are culturally, you know, a little difficult to deal with? Do you, how far do you push? Do you have to make a stand every single time? Or can you sometimes kind of sit back and say, today I'm just going to be friends with everybody? Well, I think, and I, and I try to remember uh, something I always, I always try to keep in mind is that, like you said, if, if it's our job to talk about controversial issues, I think it actually makes it a lot easier for us because that's literally our job. Someone who has a you know, normal job working at an office or something like that, they have more on the line because they could lose their job for saying something controversial, whereas for us, it means just an audience. So, uh, so I, I respect that and I appreciate that. Um, and I sympathize with it, but I, I still think that we're told in the gospel, Jesus says that if we if we stand up for our faith, if we preach his name, we're going to be hated by the world. And we're, we're told that over and over again. Uh, it's the one thing that's that's a message that's echoed repeatedly. And so we know that that's part of the bargain. And, and we, we have to be willing to accept that. And the good thing is, we also know that all of us at times have made compromises with the world to try to fit in. We've all done that. But what 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 really do we gain? You know, it doesn't doesn't make you you happier in the end uh, when you're not being true to your convictions. There's no real happiness in that anyway. So it's actually not even not even worth it. What do you, you gain nothing? So you might as well just stand up and uh, and speak the truth. What come what may? Are you surprised at how I don't know? You want to say the speed of how fast things are moving right now? I mean, we saw this rally the other day with with Chuck Schumer where he's up and talking about. 
the Supreme Court and he got a little bit of trouble talking about Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh. But the rest of that rally is women standing on stage screaming and cheering about having abortions. This is no longer safe, legal and rare. This is just safe, legal and celebrate. And these all of these cultural issues that have been sort of a tough um, battle between uh, Christians in the public sphere and, you know, sort of the uh, the, the non faithful has really like I feel like it's moved further and further and it's becoming more and more black and white, even to people who aren't faithful. I think a lot of them can see, look, nine month abortion is a really bad idea. Uh, we should be able to come together on this. Are you surprised at the speed at how fast this is progressing? Uh, in, in some ways, although I think with with something like abortion, what's happening on the left is they're realizing uh, that you know they're they're realizing that there are implications to what they're saying. You know, they they claim that the the, the child in the womb is is not a person, has no moral value whatsoever, and so uh, and and a woman by getting an abortion is expressing her bodily autonomy and her her liberty and rights as a woman. So if that's the case, then it doesn't actually make it never really made any sense for them to say, well, let's make it rare. And, you know, it's really a sad and somber thing. Nobody wants an abortion. That, that used to be what they say. As you point out, they don't say it anymore because it doesn't make any sense to say it. If, if it's true that that child of the womb is, is, is just a, a parasitic clump of cells and nothing more than that, then why should you cut down on the number of abortions? If anything, it should happen more often, especially if it's this expression of a woman's autonomy. It becomes this thing to celebrate. And so I think they've realized that. And so they're they're buying in and they're saying, you know what? Fine. This, yeah. Let's abortion all through all stages. It's something to celebrate. We're going to we're going to embrace that um, because that's the logical conclusion of what we're saying anyway. And I think the response among pro-lifers has to be I'm not saying that we respond to one extreme with an extreme of our own. But we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe what we're saying? I mean, I know I do that the child in the womb is a child, has the same exact moral worth as me and anybody else. And if we really believe that, then um, we should also be taking to the streets and, and we should be just as forceful in our message in, in defending these these children. I think a lot of people who go through life, you know, raising kids, trying to get through every single day, their kids are in public school. They're dealing with a constant beatdown from culture, whether it comes from TV and Internet and everything else. And then they got to deal with the public school messages, which are taking them off track as well. How does the average parent try to fight back against all of that at the same time? Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. And I wish I had I wish I had the exact answer to that. I've got four kids myself now and uh, I, I don't have my oldest kids are, are six. So I certainly don't have all the, the answers for that. And I also recognize that once they become teenagers, it becomes even more difficult because of how plugged in they are. But I do think that just at, at a basic level, uh, one thing that my wife and I have realized is that we, we need to You've got to find a way to create, to make your home into a safe haven to, 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 you know, everyone says you don't want to put your kids in a bubble, but there should be a little bit of a, of a bubble of a protective layer that they find in the home so that they can get away from some of this stuff. And I think that means things like uh, turning off the TV, not having the TV on 24 hours a day, maybe don't give your eight-year-old kid a smartphone with internet access. Maybe there's really no good reason for that whatsoever and only bad can come from it. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we need to take steps like that to, to try to make our homes into um, an actual family unit and not just an extension of everything that you see out in the culture. I actually am totally pro bubble. Uh, a lot of a lot of parents aren't. I moved to a town. They call it the bubble. And I'm like, that's why I moved there, uh, because I, I feel like there's a you have this small window of time that you can actually protect your kids as much as you can. And I always find that, you know, my kids at some point, my, my oldest is eight. 
at some point, he's going to find violent video games. He's going to find uh, all the bad things of the Internet. He's going to find these things. I could just push them off as long as possible. And I, I have no shame in keeping them away from that stuff early. I don't care if they're the last kid that watches the scary movie or they're the last kid that does these things. I mean, am I being overprotective? Is that a, is that a bad instinct or is that the right way to go? No, I, I agree completely. I'm, I'm pro bubble as well. My children are children of the bubble also. And, uh, you, you know, especially when I hear parents say most of the parents who say this stuff, I don't want to have your kid in a bubble. Uh, they're trying to rationalize the decisions they've made. And when they say that, I look at their kids and I think, well, if that's what happens when my kid is not in the bubble, my kid's going right in the bubble because I don't want my kid to end up like that. And uh, I think it's, that's all it is. It's a rationalization. Our, our kids need to be protected. They they need to have their innocence preserved and protected so they can be kids, so they can have an actual childhood. And I agree with you. It's not my, I'm not really worried about them at this age or men, or for, for years after this. I'm not worried about, my priority is not for them to keep up the speed with pop culture and to have all the latest gadgets. I don't think that that's what they need to become healthy, well-adjusted people, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, let's talk about our role here for a second as uh, people trying to not be complacent Christians. It, what is our role? What's our responsibility? I think part of it, obviously, is you know yourself and trying to keep yourself in line with these values, your family, the people around you, maybe. Is it the role of someone who's trying to not be a complacent Christian to pass, uh, to use government, for example, to, to pass laws to stop behavior that we find to be, you know, morally, uh, you know, upsetting in some way. Is, is it, is the government a part of that? What part is it? It can be. I think it depends. <clears throat> I know I personally believe, and I know there's a debate about this among conservatives now, which I think is a healthy debate. And I, and I'm, and I enjoy the debate. I think it's good about, you know, to what extent do we use government? I think that, um, conservatives have become way too squeamish, in my opinion, about using the arm of the state. Uh, and and for some conservatives, there's no difference between conservatism and libertarianism. I think there is a difference. Uh, and especially when it comes to protecting people, particularly children, I think that's where we use the state. So, for instance, of course, I would be all about using the state to stop the murder of children in the womb. I would absolutely want that to happen. But even things like, in my opinion, you know, these drag queen story hours where we're bringing kids into the library to be uh, to be groomed by drag queens. I think that should be illegal. I don't see any reason why it should be legal. I don't, but what what right or freedom are we protecting? Does does the drag queen have some sort of God given right to dress like a woman and uh, and go and read stories to children? I don't think so. Um, I don't find that anywhere in the Bill of Rights. So uh, so, yeah, I, I would use the state for that as well. But, but the state is being used to protect people and to prevent harm. I think uh, that's the general principle here. And certainly children, I think, is a good line for that. Uh, Matt Walsh, the book is Church of Cowards, uh, Wake Up Call to Complacent Christians. Matt, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks a lot, Stu. Appreciate it. All right, back in a second. All right, back in a second. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sad to announce that Elizabeth Warren has dropped out of the presidential race. I know you're very disappointed sitting there at home. Uh, and I was talking about Elizabeth Warren a little bit yesterday. I mean, maybe I was mocking her a little bit about her performance. And I noted one, one thing that's already starting to come true 
uh, from the result of her not becoming president in the United States. Watch this last. The most annoying thing about Elizabeth Warren is that the left is going to spend the next 10 years writing think pieces and woke women's studies essays on how Warren was completely superior to everyone else, but didn't win because of her lady parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that one's coming true already. We've got The Atlantic with a nice big think piece right here. Yes, it's entitled, America punished Elizabeth Warren for her competence. The country still doesn't know what to make of a woman in politics and beyond who refuses to qualify her success. You see, the problem with the Warren campaign, she's too successful. Too successful. We can't understand how a woman can be that successful. The lady parts get in the way. That's the big issue there. Uh, it goes on to talk about how, um, how that is the main thing in the way of Elizabeth Warren, her being a woman. Huffington Post attempted the same thing. Uh, here, Elizabeth Warren could never escape the baggage of being a female candidate. She was qualified. She persisted. But sexism still mattered. First of all, she didn't persist long enough. The whole thing with persisting is when it got difficult, you stayed in. The second she lost on Super Tuesday, she was gone. So I don't know what she persisted through in this particular race. But uh, it goes on to talk about, you know, the situation with Elizabeth Warren. Says Warren couldn't just run for president. At every step of the campaign, she was reminded that people still saw her as a female candidate with all the baggage that comes with that designation. Questions about her toughness, likability and relatability. Some women are likable. Some women aren't. Okay, just like guys. You think people like me? Nobody likes me. Okay. But most of most of the people I'm friends with, they barely even want to hang out with me for more than five minutes at a time. That's it. It's, it's not, not I'm, I'm not likable because I'm a man and she's not unlikable because she's a woman. She's just unlikable because she's her. That's the problem. She's Elizabeth Warren. And I got to say, people, what people are you talking about? Listen to this. At every step of the campaign, she was reminded that people still saw her as a female candidate. Well, I didn't vote in any of those primaries. I didn't have an opportunity to vote for a male over Elizabeth Warren. Seems like Democratic voters all said, you know what? She sucks. And that's the problem. That's why she's not going to be president of the United States, because she is not good at this thing. Um, I didn't hear a lot of people saying that about Amy Klobuchar. She didn't wind up winning, uh, but I don't remember people saying that. Uh, says here, no male candidate has ever been asked what it meant to run as a man for president. Is it us? I'm sorry. I'm trying to understand. Is it us that's trying to make everybody about their gender and their color? Is that us? Because I don't remember, you know, every time, um, you know, when uh, Nancy Pelosi became Speaker of the House, I can remember the left making a really big deal about that glass ceiling, biggest thing in the world, breaking barriers, blah, blah, blah. To me, she's just another crappy Democrat. I don't care if she's a man or a woman. And it seems like the identity politics run through the veins of every leftist until they can come up with a way to use that as if they're the victims of it. You're not the victims of of identity politics. You're the inventor of it. Um, I mean, I, I just keep going back to this. It's like I it's not me. I didn't vote for other people above Elizabeth Warren. I didn't vote all your POCs out of your Democratic primary. That was you. So that's something you need to own, not us. Back in a second. Jason Butcherill is the head researcher of the Glenn Beck program, as well as the author of the best-selling book, Shooting Guns at Terrorists, How to Lose Your Overseas Press Credentials in Less Than 10 Days. 
true story. That's a true story. It's a hell of a book. Jason. <laughs> I, know. I worked hard. <laughs> Welcome to the program. Um, you know, that was not the only time you were over in the region. Uh, you actually did shoot guns legally at, uh, at terrorists at yeah. times. You I want to go into this Taliban thing, but let's let's back up a little bit. You, uh, give us a quick synopsis of where you are on September 11th, 2001. Wow. Uh, I was actually, I was forward deployed in the Marine Corps. We were in Australia, very specifically in a very cool sports bar, by the way. <laughs> um, and we probably had way too much to drink that night because when we looked up on the TV screens, we saw the towers come down and we were just in our stupor, thought that it was some bad Australian movie. Didn't pay it any mind at all. Wow. And so literally within about an hour, the shore patrol came up, blowing whistles, rounding us all up. We had no idea what the heck was going on. They put us back on the boats. We got a crazy speech that night that I will never forget. But uh, <clears throat> our colonel that was our, our commanding officer said that uh, some along the lines of, you know, uh, men and women, you know, our day of infamy, you know, my day of infamy, my father's, my grandfather's you know, fathers yeah. was, uh, you know, the, uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah. But the world will come to know that your day of infamy was September 11, 2001. And you can imagine the feeling at that point. We were just, we were just getting information. We wanted revenge. Uh, we wanted to go straight to Afghanistan, and we did. We we were there in country within about 30 days. We were incredible. Inserted in. Yeah. I mean, and, and thousands and thousands of people just like you went and did that. Had a very similar experience, and it brings us to today. Here we are. We hear this all the time. It's America's longest war. Um, still going on. Donald Trump kind of ran on the idea that he was going to get this over with. Um, and now we have a negotiation going on between the U.S. government and the Taliban. And the idea being, we need to get out of here. We got to find some peaceful way of doing this. We need to be able to remove U.S. troops and let this region do what it's going to do, I guess. There's a big part of me, though, that does, you know, I, and I didn't even have the near the experience you had. I, I'm watching it on TV and talking about it on the air. I mean, I, you know, it's a totally different experience. Can't imagine how you feel because a big part of me just feels like I can't believe we're going there and we're negotiating with the Taliban. Yeah. Like, what, what country is this? Yeah. <clears throat> From the get go. I mean, it's so hard to understand Afghanistan. I try to explain these things very nerdily. Yeah. That's a word. Yeah. But I'll try to do it right now. This is things when we I got, we hardly even studied Afghanistan at that time. Now everyone knows it that studies that analysts do like the back of their hand, but then it was still kind of this mystery. Mm. But this is what we were looking at when we first went to Afghanistan, right? And this will set up what we're, what we're de currently dealing with. But we had to have three, no, four interpreters, or they had to know multiple languages mm. just to be able to get by and operate in the country. You've got Uzbeks, ethnic Uzbeks in the north, uh, ethnic Pashtuns in the south. Something else I can't even remember in the center <laughs> that primarily spoke Persian. Uh, yeah, I don't remember ethnically where, where they were from, but they spoke Persian. And then you had all the Arabic speakers that were running on the foreign fighters and all that. It was an absolute mess. So basically, every time someone goes in there and tries to, you know, some strongman tries to strongman them into the ground, whether that be the Soviets, whether that be the Taliban, you know, after that, whatever, they're able to just by force of will and military strength and, you know, terror, get all of them to say, hey, this is still a country. Afghanistan, just trust us. You should want this country. But none of them want it. You could very easily have, an, uh, you know, the Uzbeks merge with Uzbekistan. Very easily. Yeah. Uh, the Pashtuns, they don't even have a country, but you could very well see one day, I don't, 
this would not surprise me at all. In the very near future, they just create Pashtunistan right. or something like that. I don't know what they, it sounds right. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I might buy a property <laughs> yeah. there. Pashtunistan. The music, for, yeah. I bet that would be pretty dope. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> so all of them are always wanting to fracture and splinter apart yeah. at any moment. They don't care about Afghanistan. They care about Pashtunistan or whatever. So that's kind of what we're dealing with. And so every time someone vacates the area, they go back to warring and fighting amongst each other, trying to splinter apart and just, you know, live amongst their ethnic, you know, wherever, you know, their, their ethnic region. They, they want that right, to be right. their home. <clears throat> It'll always be that way. It will always be. It doesn't matter who's there. Right now, the Taliban, they, so we signed this peace deal, which... Stu, I am so conflicted on this. Yeah. I, I don't know if I've ever been more conflicted because what we wanted was that moment on the USS Missouri. You know, that's what we wanted to see. So we wanted the, you know, the absolute surrender, you know, yeah. as the Japanese sign. That's what we wanted. And we're not going to get that. And you're going you're gonna to talk to a lot of conservative veterans that normally would say, hey, I don't think we should be all out in, out in the world, you know, policing the entire world. Um, I'm a little bit more hawkish on some things like that. But I generally believe that as well. Sure. Shouldn't be all over the place. But those of us that fought in Iraq, Afghanistan, this is very, very personal to us. Yeah. I mean, because I, I mean, if what happens at the end of this is the Taliban is running the country. Yeah. Did we lose? <clears throat> no, I don't think so, because I, I and I think they should have defined that early on. And this is a lesson learned for every other foreign conflict we get into. Mm -hmm. Just say right off the bat, what are our goals? Our goals were to shatter the Taliban and to kick out uh, Al Qaeda and, and you know diminish their capability to hit us again like they did September 11th. We accomplished that. Yep. So <clears throat> we should have done that. Let Karzai, who was the president who you know we helped yeah. install back in the day, say, look, we gave you your shot. Now it's up to you to do something with that shot. Now it's a very very slippery slope on us just you know kind of shattering what, what was there and then jumping out and saying good luck. Uh, again, they needed to find those things early on. This is going to take us 12 months, you know, to get them into a position where we can then leave. Mm -hmm. We never did that. You mentioned Trump ran on this. Uh, you know, he's had a hard time doing it. Obama said the same thing, had a hard time doing it. Yeah. Because of that case that it, the moment we deal with the Taliban, and the Taliban's perfectly fine with dealing with us. They don't want to deal with the Afghan government. They don't want to because in the Taliban's mind, they're the ones, they're the rightful government. Yeah, they're still the government. They yeah, don't so, even recognize the Afghan government. Exactly. So they're going to continue to fight them. They're going to continue to fight them. We know this. They know that. They know that we know that. <laughs> I hate the fact that we had to sign a peace deal with terrorists Yeah. because that's what they are. And a lot of people don't understand the fact that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda worked together. They were basically one and the same. When you, uh, I was personally involved in some interrogations with, with Al Qaeda people in Afghanistan. They were like, "Yeah, when we came over as foreign fighters, we had the option of, you know, global terrorism all over the world, or to fight with our brothers in the Taliban on the front lines. It was either or. They were fully integrated. So mm. these are the people that we're dealing with right now. A lot of the commanders are the same guys that not only were there when we were there, but they were the same commanders back fighting the Soviets. The same exact guys. These are the people we are now signing peace deals with. This is, this is incredible, and I think uh, part of this." I'm conflicted on because um, the, the thing that they always say is this is America's longest war. And there is a way to technically argue that that's true. Right. I mean, obviously, from beginning to end, it's been a long time. However, right. When you talk about an active war going on all the time, traditionally, that's meant really high casualty numbers. Right. Um, and what we've seen over the past, you know, several years have been, you know, we've had flare-ups where years where, you know, you've seen you know, a lot, uh, and you've seen a, a lot of years where the numbers have been relatively low. Um, and I think we keep coming back to this thing where we say, 
the, the, the enemy of what we're trying to do as a country is the length of time from beginning to end of war, where I would much more prioritize human life. I'd much rather have a quote unquote longer war that results in 2000 people dead than going back to the old, the good old days of war where they'd be over in three years and there'd be a million dead. Yeah. Like there is a real, there's a real tough balance here because look, World War II, at the end of that, you got your, your, your complete surrender but you had to lose a lot of people to get it. On the other hand, this goes on for a long time. And at the end, we're like, I guess we'll just you know, negotiate with the terrorists. But the, the, at least we didn't lose nearly as many people. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't exactly uh, to those, those old time levels. I, I'm, I'm conflicted on which one is, I mean, I think obviously to me, the one where we lose less people is a lot better. Yeah. But you know, I, we don't get the result, I guess, at the end, maybe that's the, that's the trade-off. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean. One of the things that was interesting about this so-called so longest war that we've ever been in is it, it, what was it a war against? I mean, we, <laughs> haven't, we haven't really defined that. Yeah. The war was against terrorism, basically. It was an undefined war on terrorism. Mm -hmm. And this was just a part of that war. You know, it, it wasn't really like, it, we weren't even really looking for an unconditional surrender of the Taliban in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It was just shatter them, kick them out. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, de the definitions for what we've now entered into this modern era of of warfare that's lasted for about 20 years have been these these skirmishes where there's not really clearly defined objectives um, and they're not defined to the American people like we're doing this then we're going to get out yada 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 yeah yeah but I mean this this type of uh, Afghanistan it's it's the casualties are going to continue to rise we can't even trust the people we're training there yeah that was the biggest thing you cannot we were trying the ANA the Afghan National Army we trained them but many of them are infiltrated from the Taliban or they just don't like us anyway. So the moment we would train them, we would turn around, they'd shoot us all in the back. Mm. Those are, that's most of the, a lot of the casualties you hear about today. That, that, that's, that's, that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. We got about one minute left. Let me give you two quick proposals. Give me your take on these. These are like old timey thoughts. Number one, one of the pitches for the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was while we might not take the Taliban out completely, the, the battle is over there. We now have at least our professionals with our great weapons and their fighting battles over there rather than them crashing into civilians over here. Is that a, is that a, is that, is that a convincing argument to you at all? To, to actually do, to actually do it, the war? I think, you know, the argument was Bush looked at this and said, hey, we've moved the battleground out of schools and, and office buildings here and are able to take it over there. And even though we might not get the ultimate surrender that we want, at least we'd be able to stop terrorist attacks from coming here largely. I mean, it is a valid argument. It really is because if we would not, would not have done that, Al Qaeda would have continued to to, yeah. to strike us. That 9/11 would have been the beginning. We did stop that. The problem is, if that's your rationale, this is the catch-22 of it. You never stop. Yeah, you're never going to stop. Never. Um, one last one. No one remembers this. 2008. Um, one presidential candidate decides he wants to uh, split Afghanistan or it was Iraq, Iraq into three different countries. That candidate, Joseph Biden. Robinette Biden Jr. Yeah. Would that have been, I mean, we saw the stuff that's going on with the Kurds and everything else. Would that have been an actual solution? He never mentions it anymore, but would that have actually worked? Okay, so that actually was looked at, um, and just how I just described, that is actually possible because that's what they want. The problem is the other outside forces, people like the Taliban that want to hold it together to keep those people under their boot. Mm. And who's going to support Pashtunistan? I don't know. I, I will. I've got, we've got the timeshare on the way. Uh, Jason Buttrell from the Glenbeck Program. Follow him. What's your, uh, your Twitter? Uh, at Jason Buttrell. I mean, that's a good one to use. Uh, we'll be back in a second.
Subscribers are special. Go to blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew. Make sure to do that. You'll save 10 bucks. And that's how they know that you like this stupid show. We'll see you tomorrow.